Jesus, we thank you. Amen. You may be seated. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 reads this, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of the Father. I thank the worship team for leading us in song this morning. And for those of you who are new to fellowship or you may be visiting with us this morning, uh, let me introduce myself. I'm George Olmstead. I serve as the associate pastor of adult ministries here at fellowship. Uh, my family, we are new here as well. We've been here for just a little over seven weeks. And uh, we have, uh, we are so excited to call fellowship our home. Just want to thank Grant and the uh, the elders and, and, and you for for helping us make this adjustment. We do feel at home. We feel that God has partnered us together for specific reasons. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to share the Word of God this morning. So let's get right into that. Last week, we began a two-week mini-series, and it was entitled, and is entitled, Traits of a Christ-Centered Team. Every one of us, you know, we find ourselves as a part of team in different avenues of life. It might be for you in your workplace. You might be in your family or your marriage or maybe it's in your school or at your church here at fellowship or maybe it's your fitness group. Well, wherever that might be, we all find ourselves as part of a team. And it's important for us to understand that learning to be a team player is vital in everyday life. We would agree with that. But more importantly, as a believer, it is a non-negotiable in our faith. It's a non-negotiable in the biblical community in which we serve. We are to be a team, a Christ-centered team, a team player. As we pointed out last week, the Olympics are simply right around the corner. And many of us, we're going to spend time watching and, 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 and cheering on our country or countries that you may represent here this morning. And we're going to cheer for them as they compete for the gold in different events. And, and one of the most exciting events and team events that can be found in the Olympics is found in the track and field division. It's the 4 by 100 meter relay. It doesn't matter if you're watching the men's race or if you're watching the women's race because this specific race is all about teamwork. And it's thrilling from start to finish. So many things must go perfect for a relay team to come out on top. The first leg runner, he must get out of the starting block without a false start or without stumbling or being a fraction of a second late. Then comes that most exciting, the most nerve-wracking part of this team race, and it must be executed flawlessly. It takes place three times during and throughout the race. As you have probably figured out by now, this is the exchanging or the passing of the baton. Now listen, if you get out of the box quick, 
And if you exchange that baton flawlessly three times, then you will have a chance of winning the gold. It takes perfect execution. It takes perfect teamwork. You know, in 1936, the Olympics were held in very hostile conditions. There was a man by the name of Jesse Owens, who all of us should be familiar with. He broke four Olympic records within the span of about 70 minutes. He won the gold in the long jump. He won the gold in the 100-meter sprint, the 200-meter sprint. And a few days into the Olympics, what took place is that due to some political maneuvering by the host country, pressure had been put on the Americans to sit out their two Jewish competitors for the final relay. So not long after Jesse had uh, earned what he had thought was the final gold of, his, of, of the games, he was penciled in to run the first leg of the 4 by 100 men's relay. Now, neither Jesse nor his counterpart, Ralph Metcalf, had practiced passing the baton. The relay wasn't a common race for either one of them. As a matter of fact, they had little time to prepare, but they took to the track determined to do the best they could in the position they had been placed in. Now, not only did Jesse manage to stay in his lane and run faster than his competitors, but listen, he passed the baton seamlessly on his way to earning his fourth gold of the games as well as another world record. Now, I share that story with you for this reason. Teamwork is essential to obtaining victory. And as a team player, although maybe not prepared to the fullest to fill in at a moment's notice, a team player still must be willing to fill in when needed. You know, Jesse and Ralph, they were not prepared to pass that baton. But it did not stop them from being willing to fill in and to give it their best. You know, this is the same for a Christ-centered team, which we call the church. Teamwork within the church, it is essential to obtaining victories. It's essential for team players... Although that we might not always be the most confident or we might not feel that we are prepared to the fullest to fill in at a moment's notice, listen, as team members of the church, we must be prepared to step in when needed and to give our best. So what does it take to be a team player on a Christ-centered team? Our text this morning, which we read in just, just a few moments ago, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is going to help us answer that question as we walk through it. But as a quick reminder, last week, Pastor Grant, he introduced to us Philippians 2, 1 through 4. He gave us the first two traits of a Christ-centered team. Do you remember what they were? The first was being unity, and the second was humility. Philippians 1, 27 kind of set the stage for this when Paul writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for what? For the faith of the gospel. A Christ-centered team is unified when they are standing firm. When they have one spirit, one mind, one direction, one purpose, one goal. And for you and I this morning, as we strive together as Fellowship Bible... What we are striving for is for the gospel and the faith of the gospel to be proclaimed to change the lives of those around us. You know, a quick reminder of what biblical humility looks like. 
It's found in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. And if you look on the screen, you can read with me. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but what? Also for the interest of whom? Others. A unified and humbled individual will be a fruitful member of a Christ-centered team. Is that what you desire this morning? To be a fruitful member of a Christ-centered team. God has called us to bear fruit. And so I believe that's where our mission, our focus, our goal as individuals, as we come together as a part of the body, should be found. I want to share with you Philippians 2.5 as we begin. And Philippians 2.5 is my life and ministry verse. I, I have tried within uh, the power of the Spirit that lives within me to carry this out. Philippians 2.5 states, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. This verse, it keeps me focused on my calling as a believer. It keeps me focused on my mission as a servant. As I was growing up, I actually learned that just a little bit differently from a different version. And it says, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. So that, that, that word mind and attitude, it's, it's linked together. We should desire to live with the mind, the attitude of Christ at the forefront of everything that we do and everything that we say. Now listen, just like you, I am no way perfect in this. My, my, my wife and my kids can attest to that for you. But this is what I strive for as God continues that sanctification process. So the first trait we see this morning in our text is this, is that we are to be servant-minded. To be servant-minded. So we're to have unity, we're to, to present ourselves with humility, and then we're to come before the Lord as a part of a Christ-centered team being servant-minded. We find this as we look in verses 5 through 7. And it says, again, have this attitude in yourself, which also is in Christ Jesus, who as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. When Paul writes this in verse 5, here's what's taking place. He is providing for us the foundational power of how we can faithfully live out verses 1 through 4 that we looked at last week. How can we be unified? How can we be one with a humble spirit? As a matter of fact, he's saying this, if we want to put it in our own terms today, hey, if you want to live a life of humility, which will in turn produce unity with others, you are going to need the power of someone far greater than yourself. To allow this to happen. So Paul identifies who that person is. Who can allow this to happen. He is our model. He is our example. He is the one we should look for. And the name is Jesus Christ. He points us to the traits of Jesus. That that you and I, we should desire to develop. Along with unity and humility. Let this attitude, this mind be in you that is in Christ Jesus. So exactly what is this attitude? Well, the first thing we see is that it's servant-minded heart. If you look at verse 6, Paul reminds us of the deity of Christ. And it's important that, that Paul takes time to get into some theology here so that, so that we understand exactly who Jesus is and what's it, what, who he is and, and what's kind of expected from us since we are not God. So we want to look at that very quickly. Paul reminds us, he says, listen, Jesus has always existed. He's the Son of God. He's the second person 
of the Trinity. He is God. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us this when he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you look in the book of Genesis, you can see that, uh, that as God is creating, he said, let us make man in our image. We see that, that the Son has always been. The Son of God, he did this. He left heaven to dwell on this earth with a specific purpose. A purpose. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus actually gives us insight into exactly why he came. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Boy, that, that's Jesus wrapped in a hole. It's like, listen, I didn't come to be the one that was served. I'm coming to serve the needs of man. He is the ultimate servant. Our greatest need as a human being is to have our sins forgiven. And so Jesus says, listen, I'm going to come and serve. I'm going to serve in that way, but I'm also going to serve for the life as a ransom for many. As the ultimate servant, not only is he God, but Paul continued to show the servant-mindedness of Jesus. When he writes in verse 6, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It's very compelling scripture. The son was willing to do this. He's willing to, to leave his high position in, a, in heaven temporarily to do this, to come and to serve the needs of man. Jesus did not have to ask God this question, hey, can you hold my position at your right hand? He did not have to grasp on to who he was. Listen, it had already been established that the Son of God in his position is at the right hand of the Father. So being servant-minded, this is what happens. The Son, Jesus, was sent by the Father. He willingly left heaven to come dwell among men. He came to serve. And verse 7 goes on to tell us this, that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Now, there have been those who have wrestled. What did he empty himself of? Well, we can't know exactly because it doesn't tell us. But we understand this throughout Scripture, and we're going to take a gander of what that does look like here in just a moment. But, but what we can be sure of is that Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. Jesus was fully God and fully man while he was here on this earth. And throughout the book of John, Jesus clearly declares himself as God. Although he's serve in servant mode, he's, he's serving those that are around us. He's also worshiping the Father. Here's what he states. You should be familiar with these, and if you're not, you can find them in the book of John as you read. It says this, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. This is Jesus speaking. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Why did those I am statements rattle the feathers of everyone he said that to, especially the religious leaders. Well, you remember in Exodus 3.14, God introduced himself to Moses with that statement, I am who I am. And Jesus, he, he uses the same expression to identify that, that he is God. Therefore, we can be assured that Jesus did not empty himself of his deity while he, here, while he was here on this earth. Charles Ryrie says this, Christ did not become any less God, but he chose to not use some of his divine attributes. This involved a veiling of his pre-incarnate glory and the non-use of some of his divine prerogatives during the time he was on earth. Jesus chose to live 
his life here on earth as a servant-minded son of the Father. We know this again. Why? Because we just follow the Scripture step by step. In verse 7, Paul continues by stating that Jesus took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. So in taking the form of that bondservant, here's what happened. Jesus willingly adopted the nature of a servant. He didn't cease to be God, but he added to his divine nature a true human nature. And and Jesus' humanity allowed him to face temptation. It allowed him to suffer pain and agony. It allowed him to run the gamut of emotions. Jesus experienced that bodily consequence of sin, such as fatigue, aging, and death. Now, he did not sin, but his body, being made in the likeness of man, experienced all of that. We, we need to be reminded that, that when Jesus was walking on this earth and as he was being introduced to people, he just looked like an ordinary man. He wasn't a superhuman. He didn't walk around with the Shekinah glory of God about him. He simply came to this earth to be a servant. And that's how he presented himself. He was both fully God and fully man. So the trait that we pull out of verse 5 through 7 is that this, when Paul instructs us to live out this attitude, this mind of Christ, he is calling us to allow ourselves to be servant-minded just as Jesus was during the time, his time here on earth. So if we as believers are going to be teammates, that's the goal, to be unified through humility and servant-mindedness, If we are to be teammates, we must be servant-minded toward others. Not just other believers, but to all who are around us. It would do us well, fellowship, to do this. To to practice this trait of servant-mindedness through volunteering and taking advantage of the service opportunities that, that are offered here on Sunday and Wednesday and throughout the week. To say, hey, where can I find my place to serve, to be a part of the team. Pastor Grant used some different illustrations last week, such as our children's ministry. We've talked about our Stephen ministry. But, but listen, uh, our, our AV ministry, there, there's so many areas that we can serve and be servant-minded in. What about this? Maybe finding service opportunities out in the community. And here's how we can accomplish that. We could be teammates through our life groups. Through, through finding ways to, to go beyond the walls of the church and even beyond the walls of our home. And it's, it's great to get together to, to fellowship, to pray, to break bread, to study deep. But listen, we've got to make sure that as we are intaking what God is giving us and he's, and he's growing us and he's molding us, he's maturing us, that we must be willing to go out into the communities, go out into the sphere of influence that we have, and to, and to serve others so that Christ might be glorified and others can come to his saving knowledge. So an opportunity that we can do that here on Sundays and Wednesdays, throughout the week, in our life groups, and again, maybe just in your own way, in that sphere of influence that you have, to say, hey, how can I be servant-minded? Paul has given us three traits of a Christ-centered team so far. He's given us unity, humility, and servant-mindedness. But he doesn't stop there. As a matter of fact, we get to look at verse 8 as we continue. And he's still using Christ as our example. I wonder why. It's because he's the best. 
He's the, he's the greatest example. He states in verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Boy, obedience. It's an outpouring of a humbled heart. Listen, without humility, it is nearly impossible to obey. Because we are be giving an, we're be given a, a request, an order, a command, a suggestion, however you want to word it. But when it's time to be obedient, we have to humble ourselves and say, hey, that's what we need to do. So obedience is that outpouring of a humbled heart. And this entire passage, 5 through 11, 1 through 11, speaks of that humility of Christ. He was servant-minded due to his humility, and he lived a life of obedience through a spirit of humility. Here's what he did. He, he left the glories of heaven. He left the position of the right hand of the Father, being made in the likeness of man. Jesus made his earthly life about humility and service. And with this, he was obedient, obedient to the point of death. Now, if we can just take a moment and, and pause right here in this passage and just recall Mark chapter 14. Now, Pastor Grant's been taking us through the book of Mark for a while, and we're going to get back into it soon. But if you can recall Mark 14, here's what's happened. We find Jesus in the garden, and he is praying right before his arrest. Here's what it reads. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground and began praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I love that we see the humanity of Christ here. Hey, God, any, any other way? I, I, I'm going to be obedient. But hey, is there something, because you're the one that has all the power to, to, to make things happen. But instead, we find Jesus in a crucial moment. He's nearing that time of completion of his mission, of his purpose, of why he came. He prays to the Father, and I want us to catch that last little part of his prayer. Yet not that I will, but what you will. Man, that's biblical obedience. That, that should be eye-opening to us. What we see wrapped in biblical obedience is a few things. We see submission. We see a humility. We see a servant-mindedness. We see a spirit of unity. All for the sake of others. Why did Jesus go to the cross? For the sake of others. Why is he calling us to be servant-minded? Why is he calling us to be obedient in living out ourselves as a part of a Christ-centered team? He's calling that us to do that for the sake of others. What do others need? They need love, they need compassion, they need mercy, they need forgiveness. They need us to pour into them the love of Christ. A few weeks ago during our summer series on Wednesday night, we, we looked at the book of James. And we've been spending time there. I'd encourage you, we still have a few more weeks left. That, that series, you don't have to have been a part of it to, to jump in. You can jump in the last few weeks if you'd like. It's on Wednesday nights. But I would encourage you at some point this week to, to go to the website, to click the button that you see on, this, on, this, on the screen, and really... Allow yourself to, to dig a little deeper into biblical obedience as we did together a few Wednesday nights ago. And here's what we conclude, concluded about biblical obedience. That it's an act of worship. So, for example, I have 
three children. They, uh, they are not perfect. They, uh, they sin. They disobey. And so there's a lot of correcting times that we get to have in our home. And during those times of correction, discipline, we, we, we discipline, but we also like to talk through what, what the process, what's going on. And one of the things we like to do is to sit them down and say, listen, hey, I know right now you're having difficulty obeying me. Maybe it's because you don't like me or maybe because you didn't like what I told you to do or you, you fill in the blank, son. There's some reason you don't want to obey me, but can I give you a way to carry out obedience? And I'll talk to them and say, listen, when God says children obey your mom and dad, obey your parents, I will encourage them. Who are you truly obeying and worshiping in this moment? Are you obeying me or are you obeying Christ through an act of worship? My boys look at me and go, man, I I do want to worship Jesus. I still don't want to obey you all the time. But the cool thing is, man, when when they grasp that, things go a little bit better for a few weeks. Hey, what a great illustration for us. There are times we don't want to obey as adults, Correct. We don't obey God's word sometimes. We don't obey those in authority over us. We don't, you know, we don't want to obey. But when we realize that it's an act of worship to the God who saved us, who is changing us, who is molding us, listen, that puts obedience in perspective. And you and I can carry out that obedience because we desire to worship God. In fact, when I think of complete obedience, I think of what it will cost us You know, complete obedience sent Jesus to the cross. It cost him his life. A life that was willingly laid down. Jesus tells us that complete obedience is going to do what? It's going to cost us our family. It's going to cost us friends. It's going to cost us the things of the world. This is nothing new to to those who have been believers for a while. Well, there was a man by the name of Pierre Barlow. He was a gunner in the fort of Mont Valerian during the Prussian siege of Paris. You know, one day he was standing by his gun when General Noel, the commander, came up and leveled his glass at the Severus Bridge. Gunner, he said, do you see that Severus Bridge over there? Yes, sir. And you see that little shanty in a, in a thicket of shrubs to the left? I see it, sir, said Pierre, turning pale. Listen, that's a nest of Prussians. Try it with a shell, my man. Pierre turned paler still. He sighted his piece deliberately, carefully, then fired it. Well hit, my man, well hit, exclaimed the general. But as he looked at Pierre, he was surprised to see a great tear running down the gunner's cheek. What's the matter, man? Pardon me, general, said Pierre, but that was my house. Everything I had in the world. Man, that is an illustration of biblical obedience. God is not calling us to obedience to simply help us live a life of ease. He's calling us to obedience so he can shape us into the servant he desires for us to be able to, be carry, to do and to carry out. The trait of biblical Christ-like obedience we are being called to will cost us much, but I can assure you this. It is worth losing everything this world has to offer to be living out the attitude and the mind of Christ. It's worth it because Jesus is worthy of all. If we desire to be a Christ-centered team here at Fellowship, we must 
all be obedient to what Jesus had called us to. And that's found in Matthew 28 when Jesus commissioned us to do what? To go and make disciples. Jesus was obedient unto death, death unto the cross, so that sinners like you and me could be forgiven and made right before God. He was not only the ultimate servant, but he was the ultimate sacrifice. Listen, this morning, if you're here and you have not met Jesus, if you have not repented of your sin, if you have not given your life to him, if you haven't answered that call to salvation, can I encourage you this morning that when Jesus went to the cross, when he died and he was buried and he rose from the grave, he did that so that you and I could repent and be forgiven of our sin, be saved and given a new life in him. Folks, when we think about being servant-minded and obedient, we think about how much Jesus Christ loved us and what he did for us on that cross how he allowed us to be made right with the Father. If we are truly, I guess rephrase that, since we are a Christ-centered team here at Fellowship, let us be obedient in making disciples. That involves both evangelism and discipleship, sharing the Gospels with others, baptizing them, and teaching them. We find the last trait of the Christ-centered team here in Philippians 2, 9-11. through 11. For this reason, also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everything that we've studied so far leads to this last trait. It takes unity, humility, servant-mindedness, and obedience to be able to carry this trait out. And I'm so thankful that God has called us to it. A Christ-centered team is made up of individuals who are Christ-exalting. When you consider all that took place in verses 5 through 11, we see Jesus do what? He humbly lowered himself to the likeness of man, becoming a servant, becoming obedient unto death. And then God does this. He exalts him back to his rightful place of honor and glory. He doesn't restore his deity because he never emptied himself of that, but he places him back in the right place of honor and glory. The entire reason this earth exists, and I I hate to break this to you, but the entire reason this earth, earth exists is not for you and me. It's to the glory of God. And that is made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Bible says no man comes to the Father but through him. Jesus, the Son of God, he is worthy and he alone is worthy to be exalted and praised. When we think about that Christ exaltation, the Son of God came to earth the first time as a lowly servant with a sacrificial, salvific purpose. Now listen, when he comes the second time, he will come as a mighty king in which there will be no mistake as to who he is. Verses 10 and 11 scream at us. It's trying to get our attention. When Paul writes, Jesus has been exalted, and listen, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen, that's for those who are believing now. Those who have believed in the past, those who, have believed, who will believe in the present. But listen, it will also be for those who have rejected the offer of salvation by Christ. If you're here this morning and, man, you just, you're wondering if you're going to bow before Christ. Can I tell you this morning, we will. Kneel and bow before Christ. 
And guess what we're going to do? We will confess him as Lord. A Christ-centered team is focused on glorifying and worshiping and praising Jesus now. So as a Christ-centered team, let us exalt Christ in all situations. Let's exalt Christ in our suffering, in challenging times, in joyful times, in times of victory. Let's exalt him together. I want to share with you a story of how powerful Christ's exaltation can be from the believer. And, And I don't say this to pull on heartstrings. I just simply tell you an example that we show others how much we love Christ when we find ourselves in some of the most despairing times in our life. My brother and sister-in-law, a few few years ago, uh, were pregnant with twins. And there was a lot of complications in the womb. And the the twins were were able to be born, Cannon and Coit. Man, just beautiful little babies. But in God's sovereignty, he saw fit to, to take them home, to take them to heaven. And I'll be honest with you, my, my brother and sister-in-law were not in the best place in their marriage, and we know what a loss of a child can do. But I can tell you this, I watched my brother and sister-in-law begin to exalt Christ in their own lives and then together. And I watched others come to know Jesus because of their Christ exaltation of God. We don't like it, we don't understand, but I'll tell you this, Jesus, you are in control. And boy, in that submission and in that humility and in that loss... Boy, I will never say I understand because I don't, but I know this. Boy, they sure set the example of what it looked like to be Christ-exalting. Can I tell you this morning, I know some of us find ourselves in places of hurt, but I want to ask you, cling to the hope that Jesus is. Exalt him. You know, Jesse Owens, he was not prepared to run a relay race, but he stepped up to fill in and pass the baton flawlessly. Let me encourage you this morning, believer, be willing to step up to fill in and pass the baton of the gospel of faith. Maybe you don't have all the traits yet. I know I'm still being worked on. Maybe we don't have all the traits yet that we pulled out of this text. But can you be confident, and let me encourage you to be confident, that the Holy Spirit who lives within you will help you grow in them as you pursue your walk with Jesus. If you're not a believer this morning, again, can I just simply invite you to a place where you place your faith and trust in Jesus. Listen, he loves you. And teammates, those of us who are in Christ, he has called us to be unified, to be humble, to be servant-minded, to be obedient, and to exalt him in everything we do. Folks, that's the mission. That's the purpose. Let us pray this morning. God, we love you.